Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. In every generation, through every challenge and hardship and danger, America has risen to the task. We have met the moment, and we have prevailed. That wasn't Franklin Roosevelt, although I'm sure many imagined that listening. That wasn't Winston Churchill. That was Donald Trump. Mike Murphy yesterday in the uh, in the Rose Garden, uh, hanging out the hanging out the mission accomplished uh, banner on testing for this coronavirus. Were you moved? Were you? Oh, I've never been more inspired, David. Uh, You know, eighty thousand dead Americans and growing testing has been. It would have been difficult even with the most competent administration, but it's been a disaster. We're slowly stumbling into a better situation. But look, it's I'm just uh, what's the word to it? I'm uh, numb. I'm numb to Trump hyperbola and lying. And, you know, here we go again. Um, It's just uh, it's just a parody of Churchill. That's the worst part. Speaking about stumbling into a better situation, guess who uh, stumbled in here? Our old buddy Robert Gibbs is here. He's here, the one and only. Yeah, Robert, I tweeted this morning that if I were Joe Biden, I would pay Donald Trump to do these COVID-19 briefings at this point. That struck me. It was meant to be a big moment for him. And, you know, once again, his instincts, which are to oversell, turned the whole thing into a farce, and it ended very badly. But uh, what was your sense of the whole deal? Very much the same thing. I, I think that, and and look, go back two months ago. Two months ago, in the CDC tour, uh, he told everybody that they could get a test if they wanted or needed a test. It wasn't true then. Did it again yesterday? Yeah, it wasn't true then. It's not even true now. You know, I think for for everybody that's listened or seen Trump over the past three years and thought to themselves. When is this finally going to catch up with him? When is the sort of withering, uh, uh, the, the, the erosion of truth, if you will, that we see every day from him? When is, it, when is the bill going to come due? The CNN poll this morning found that 36% of the American people trust the information on the coronavirus that they get from Trump. And the, the, the only thing that makes you ask is, like, who are those 36%? Um, I, I think the, the bill has very much come due because – at a moment in which he most needs to be able to go trumpet something that's good, even as you said, he almost always oversells by a lot, uh, you know, two-thirds of the American people just simply don't believe what he has to say. Uh, and I think that is going to – that will, because of what has happened over the course of time, that's always going to be hard to fix. Yeah, there's an interesting feedback loop happening here because Trump is so polling sensitive and the media is so polling addicted. You know, there's new public data every day and it's bad. And a lot of what's bad about it is Trump driving it through his mistakes and his, you know, uh, misstatements and lies on these briefings. But simultaneously, the Republican committees are out doing a lot of polling now at the senatorial congressional level, obviously the presidential. And it's all terrible. And there's a huge strainer to try to keep the data from Trump, who who loves polls, but it's getting through. Some of it is. And so Trump is wigging out even more than the normal level of Trump wig out. And then you've got this drama with, you know, his campaign manager collecting Ferraris and Trump, of course, like any candidate being obsessed with the payroll of the staff, the bad polling. There's some Kushner Parscale 
slappy fight going on. Corey Landowski, of all knuckleheads, is hovering around to move in to be the prime yes man. So the, this turmoil inside is just ratcheting up the pressure and the fear inside Trump. And so he does what, you know, you guys just talked about. He doubles down on the bullshit hard sell, which, of course, digs him into a deeper hole. So it uh, is kind of like watching a drowning man. Yeah, but, you know, uh, he's a drowning man who keeps floating at about the same place. He, you know, for all of what Robert said, his approval rating in this poll remained constant at 45 percent. Republicans now 70 some percent believe the worst is behind us. Seventy percent of Democrats believe otherwise. I mean, this thing is becoming a portrait of where America is generally in its politics. and. He, you know, he's playing base politics. His theory of the case has always been, if I can uh, just galvanize my base. And, you know, you saw a little of it over the weekend. Uh, President Obama uh, had uh, some unkind things to say about Trump at a ostensibly closed call or Zoom of 3,000 alumni. This not being his first rodeo, he probably understood that uh, 3,000 person audience is not a uh, off the record event. Let's just listen to a little of what Obama had to say. The news uh, over the last 24 hours, I think, has been somewhat downplayed about uh, the Justice Department dropping uh, charges against Michael Flynn. And the fact that there is no precedent that anybody can find for uh, someone who's been charged with perjury uh, just getting off scot-free. Uh, that's the kind of stuff where you, you begin to uh, get worried that basic, not just institutional norms, but uh, our basic understanding of, of rule of law uh, is 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 uh, is at risk, and you know, when you start moving in those directions, um, it, it can accelerate pretty quickly, uh, as we've seen in in, in other places. So, uh, I am hoping that all of you feel the same sense of urgency that I do. So he went on to exhort uh, his uh, his uh, former colleagues to be active in the campaign, but basically uh, was uh, uh, calling uh, Trump out as a kind of uh, neo or, 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 or crypto authoritarian or, or, or fascist. He also uh, talked about the uh, what he called the chaotic disaster of the federal hand- handling of this virus and Trump spent the weekend including most of Mother's Day uh just going nuts on this and uh and then and you know and accusing Obama of the worst political crime in history it's still not explicit as to what exactly that crime was but he promises we'll we'll know soon uh I mean the whole thing has taken a crazy turn Murphy and the kind of uh uh the uh conspiracy theory uh, folks on your side of the aisle there are uh, are running with it. Well, I've always thought the perfect bumper sticker for Trump would be "Crazy times demand a crazy president." So the crazy <laughs> doesn't uh, doesn't surprise me at all. It, it it it's Trump 
uh, normal. But but th- this is going to be interesting because it's tricky for Obama and Bush and other former presidents because in the former president rule book, you know, chapter one is stay out of the current political stuff. But Trump is one so crazy. The current situation is so bad. And Trump will take any mention of him as a provocative, you know, attack. So um, even by a kind of a gentle kitten slap that I think was totally true about rule of law, it's now ignited this this thing. And my guess is uh, former President Obama will get sucked into it a little more. I You said something earlier that I, I kind of agree with with a twist, which is Trump's theory is the ba- – I don't think it's a theory with Trump because I don't think Trump does theories like theory one, theory two, or theory three. I think he <laughs> does instinct. And his instinct is yeah. to never leave the Republican primary, his comfortable place. And he he's, he's done that. Now, I would say, by the way, 70 percent of Republicans believing him means 30 percent don't, which of a voting group you want to get 91, 92 percent of is a, is a little crack in the wall. But the, the point is Trump is always going to exist in the world of Republican primary, which is why it's very hard for him to ever get beyond 45 percent unless Biden totally is able to let Trump change the election to a negative referendum on him. And I don't think the Obama stuff helps Trump with that because Obama, Republicans don't like him. But it, 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 his numbers aren't bad enough in the suburbs and other places to be yeah. helpful to Trump. It's the opposite. No, I don't think an integrity fight with Obama is going to help him with the voters he needs. I would only say on the 45 percent thing that his numbers were uh, equally inauspicious uh, in 2016. And as we all know, it's not a national election. It's a state by state election. And so really what matters is in those battleground states uh, where he has a better chance. Uh, you know, I, I, I find it phenomenal, given everything that's going on, just how rock solid his base is. Robert, you said, I wonder who those 36 percent are. Um, I mean, he's got a solid core of of vote that will stay with him through thick or thin. It's probably in that range, maybe higher. Uh, and, um, you know, as Mike says, it may be limiting uh, in terms of his ability uh, to win. I think he's going to have to try and uh, tear Biden down to do it. Uh, but, um, but you know, he's he knows his crowd and he's always talking to them. And especially when he's in trouble, he he goes back to that. He also, by the way, this Obama thing is a part of another uh, go-to move of Trump, which is when you are in trouble over here, start a dumpster fire over there and try and deflect attention uh, over there. And he probably would, he probably thinks it's advantageous to uh, create this other brush fire so people aren't focused on uh, the abysmal situation uh, that we're in relative to the virus and the economy. Look, I think he's the he's the chief of grievances, right? And And he always wants to... Uh, that that's what leads him into that sort of base politics. I'm struck by the the really the full circle that we've come with Michael Flynn. Uh, remember, Michael Flynn was fired by Donald Trump for lying uh, and lying to the press secretary, lying to most importantly the vice president, both of whom then went out and repeated his lie. You started this point with, you know, he's out here at these press conferences and he's overselling things. He's surrounded by people that aren't going to stop him and just don't have the ability to do so. Mike Pence told uh, Axios on HBO he'd welcome Michael Flynn back into the administration, even though 
there were all these reports about how upset he was when Michael Flynn lied to him to begin yeah, with. He welcomed his firing at the time. Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, I think the I, rule over there is uh, nobody gets, you know, if anybody's going to do lying around there here, it's going to be the head man. Okay. <laughs> None of you other guys are authorized to do it. Leave it to the president. His ability to bend the party and to anybody around him to his will is, uh, is remarkable. I, I think in terms of the, the, what you mentioned around the base and the vote, I mean, I do think you are beginning to see ever so slight cracks in his inability to get his approval number in some of the state's, uh, in terms of his vote share. And if you see that erosion, again, even by 1% or 2%, that could be a big deal come election day. We've got a long way to go uh, before that. Uh, and he's clearly, as you both have mentioned, in order to survive this, he has to make this a scorched earth referendum. Uh, because if it is simply a choice on Donald Trump, uh, that's not going to go well. By scorched earth, you mean he needs to try and destroy Biden. Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, he's know. got to. Right, right. I, I would just say to my Democratic friends, I would not be distracted by the Michael Flynn dumpster fire because, mm-hmm. yes, it's a horrible rule of law thing. But on the west side suburbs of Detroit, they think Michael Flynn is some leprechaun. It, it means nothing to any voter. And it's a D.C. thing. And as awful as it is, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is a Trump dumpster fire into Washington. He said she said stuff. It's it's not good offense. Um, oh, there's I no doubt. outrage. But, you know, totally it's, it's just no traction, not worth a lot of horsepower. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. I, I just want to, before we leave the press press conference, uh, I wanted to uh, hear a little bit of the exchange and the way it ended and how uh, our, our wartime president departed this press conference. Uh, let's uh, take a listen yeah, to let's that. let's listen. Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. You said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes, why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question That's like that. That's not a nasty question. Please nasty. go ahead. Why does it matter? When okay, uh, anybody else? Please go ahead in the back, please. I have two questions. No, it's okay. But we'll you pointed to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, please. But you, did, you called on me. I did, and you didn't respond, and now I'm calling on... Sorry, I just want the to young lady in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague okay. finish. But can I ask you Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Appreciate but it. Thank you very much. And then the commander in chief fled. <laughs> exactly. We should point out for context Weijia Zhang of uh, CBS, who uh, was born in China. Uh, she's an American citizen, obviously. Um, she was asking the question. And. Um, and she very properly wanted to know why he so pointedly raised China with her. Uh, then Caitlin Collins, who's been uh, very, very, I think, tough and fair uh, with the president, stepped up to the microphone. He was aggravated that he she gave her colleague a chance to follow up. Uh, and when Caitlin in, uh, insisted on asking her questions, 
the president uh, up and ran. Um, and my question to you guys is, uh, you know, he does with his base, the, the fighting with the media is helpful. But here he has this racially tinged exchange with an Asian, Asian American reporter and basically disses two women reporters. And Mike, you're ta- you've talked before about suburban voters uh, and there the great advantage that uh, Democrats and Biden have is among women. Uh, and I'm wondering how this all nets out for him, uh, in, in addition to the, 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 uh, scenario where he cuts and runs. Well, you know, Trump has those problems because he's perceived by too many suburban female college educated white voters as creepy and boorish and terrible. And so to get out of his trap, he has to learn how to not be creepy, boorish and terrible. And there he How's was doubling going? down on the creep. Yeah. No, no, no. He can't. He can't. Trump's the atomic clock of Trump. So I don't think this was a big number mover. I think if you're one of those uh, voters and you don't like Trump, you sure don't like him anymore. And that's Trump's problem. Trump is the one who needs things to change. He needs to either make it about Biden or fix himself. And he's incapable of fixing himself. But in his base, which, again, I keep saying I don't think is big enough to win. But in that world, this stuff works because one they, you know, hate the media. And anytime hectoring reporters are shouted down by Trump, they think it's a win. So I, I, I think this thing is actually kind of a wash, but that's a loss for Trump because it doesn't change anything. Yeah. Uh, Robert, you, you, as an old White House press secretary, your view of it? Look, I don't know that that exchange in and of itself will, will change a lot. But I, I, if you're Donald Trump, is to build off of what Murphy said, but tease it out a little bit, You've got to change your trajectory with suburban voters. And, and you know, Mike, you and I both, you far more than me, but we've both worked in that state of Michigan. And I keep thinking, you know, when somebody sees this, uh, when uh, when a suburban woman in Oakland County sees this, uh, you know, it's not going to cause her to want to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not going to do that in suburban Philadelphia uh, and in so many places around the country, I, I think, you know, I think he has to keep the balloon in the air and keep getting in fights. And if he can get into both a fight with the press and a fight, uh, that looks tinged with, uh, racial overtones, then he probably thinks it's a twofer. It's one of the things. And one of the reasons why, you know, I think the candidate that, the team that would most like to see their candidate in a basement long term would be Trump's team without the Wi-Fi code uh, or without his phone. Uh, they would love him to be trapped somewhere of course, where yeah. he can't do himself continually more harm than he does good. Uh, it's why these things are now once a week or once every two weeks. They come after, as you said, 150 some tweets on Mother's Day. Um, it's remarkable to think this is a guy in a 50-50 election uh, and, and that he's employing any sort of strategy. Yeah, I mean, I look, I would, I would say two things. One is um, not just women, but men who watch that and see a guy who seems a little unhinged. And that is, goes to the larger problem here of the chaos that reigns uh, around him. I don't think that exchange uh, has much impact in and of itself. It's the aggregation of these things. And that goes to your point, Robert, about the fact that I think if, uh, if, if Democrats would pay to have him do these briefings every day, Re- Republicans would pay to have him not do these briefings. 
uh, every day. He thinks he's helping himself, uh, but um, I think that that is a very, uh, very dubious proposition. Yeah, no, no. Look to to slaughter Churchill. Never have so many wish for laryngitis because of the trouble from you know so few. I, I'll say one thing about this though. I I think. In some ways, the weaker thing for Trump was not the racial stuff, because I do believe Trump would have given that answer if it had been a Bulgarian reporter there, because he blames China for everything. It's just the default. But but her ethnicity and his snarling tone made it worse. But I think the biggest part of it in some ways was the running away. Mr. Tough Guy, Mr. Strong, (laughs) Mr. You're Fired uh, was, you know, uh, running in terror from a cable reporter. Um, that that's kryptonite for his brand to be a wimp like that. So I think that could be the little subtext wave here. Yeah, even no, in I his agree world with that. that can, and the Dems ought to double down on that. It, it's less about the racial stuff, which you know the woke meter in in Trump's vote is a lot uh, less finely tuned than the one in the Democrat echo chamber. But the Mister Tough Guy running in fear, President having a scaredy cat moment, all that will really get in Trump's head if it can blow up in the media. Yeah, and I don't understand, Robert, why uh, the Biden campaign or those supporting the Biden campaign weren't super quick to turn that into some sort of viral, you know, the hero of the Rose Garden kind of lampoon of of Trump. Um, You know, I, I, I think those guerrilla tactics have not been in long supply on the other side and trump provides these moments that just lend themselves to that kind of thing right and i think if you get a central to 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 murphy's point if there's i think if you can do one of two things if you can occupy some significant real estate inside of his head uh, then I think you can throw him off his game and make him do things, quite frankly, that are not in his best interest, right? So you could imagine him wanting to double down and tell people, no, I'm going to go out every day. I'm right. going to go out and do this every day. I-, I think the other thing is to just establish some sort of central thematic uh, around the coronavirus, around the economy, you know, whether it, it didn't have to be this way or, or some some messaging, because I, I and I, I think this is what the Biden campaign is going to have to uh, is going to have to get engaged in. And that is the sort of day to day to this of this that they're not probably in a significant way right now because they're dispersed. Uh, because they're not all sitting in a campaign headquarters and you can't say, hey, three of you come around this laptop. What do we think we should do to push out quickly on social media and try to create something? I just think also think it's attitudinal. I mean, I think you have to have a, an, income, a, an insurgent mentality here uh, and keep the pressure on Trump because he's about to open up a big can of whoop on uh, Biden. And you don't want to be playing defense from now till November. And, and Trump has a screen door into his psyche. He reacts more than any candidate I've ever seen. So they've got to make four calls out to Hollywood, get a room of comedy people. There, there should have been a Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous knockoff Ferrari video about the campaign manager, get him fired, get Corey in there. There are so many Department of Ungentlemanly Warfare things they could do virally, but but it's just not the way the Biden campaign works. But outsource it. It's not a hard thing right. to organize. right. You know, uh, we talked about, uh, I just said he was going to open up a big can of whoop. They ran for a couple of weeks some positive ads trying to tell people what a great job Trump has done on this virus. That They, they were uh, spitting into the wind there on that one because everybody, um, and they were spitting into the wind without masks, by the way. <laughs> but um, boom. Everybody knows what's going on uh, out there. And that's 
Trump's big problem here is he's pushing all the old buttons, the con buttons about, let me just sell. I'm going to tell you that my, my casino is the most profitable in the world. I'm going to tell you that my condos are the best in the world. I'm going to tell you that Trump steaks and vodka and, uh, you know, gold-plated Trump University degrees are the best you can get. Uh, but here, everybody's living the reality, and none of those buttons are working particularly well. So now they've concluded, I think properly, that they're not going to get anywhere on that, and they're starting their uh, Biden campaign. They took out 60s. I'm not going to play them because a lot of the 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 spot relies on uh, video of Biden, uh, and it, it it there's a text to it, which is that Biden's soft on China. That's a big piece of their attack. But there's a subtext that's an even even bigger piece of the attack is that in that they chose bites of Biden that make Biden look particularly bad. I mean that they they chose bites in which he. Uh, you know, looks a little addled in places and so on. Uh, and that is where I think they are going to press this attack. Uh, you know, that uh, they are going to try and disqualify Biden. Okay, you don't mm-hmm. like Trump, but do you think this guy's up to the job? And um, I think that is a that is a challenge the Biden people need to be very, very uh, aware of. And they, are, they need to be pushing out. You know, normally these super PACs run negative ads I, I they actually if they don't have the money to run their own ads someone should be running a track and i know one super PAC is of positive ads about biden that depict him uh that tell his story because people don't know it uh even though he's been around a long time mm-hmm. uh that depict him as someone who has mastery of uh the economy and government and so on uh th- they need to tell a counter story here because they're about to be colored in in much the way, Robert, that the Obama campaign colored in Mitt Romney in the spring of 2012, much to his detriment. <laughs> Those bastards. But go ahead, Robert. Go ahead. Revisit the crime. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, again, I mean, look, we, we are at that point in an election where every incumbent, uh, again, like I said, wants to make this a referendum uh, on two candidates rather than a choice on just one. Uh, it happens uh, in good times and in bad. And I think, look, wh- one of the things that, that, you know, for all of Trump's uh, foibles, uh, and we certainly wouldn't want him in charge of a pandemic, but we didn't have, we didn't have the hindsight to, to think through that. But his ability to pick nicknames like Crooked Hillary or Low Energy Jeb or Lying Ted uh, and have that not just stick, but encapsulate a larger message is, um, has been very effective. And, uh, I think there is no doubt that, uh, he's picked it a long time ago for Joe Biden in sleepy Joe. And look, again, the danger obviously is that it encapsulates this idea that we are going to need somebody with, with, with a lot of vigor to rebuild from the health standpoint, but probably even more importantly, rebuild this economy. Uh, the economy is going to drive the vote. And if, right. if they believe that he's not somebody who's up to that, adding in the idea that we still have a large number of people that think Trump was a successful businessman, right. that's a tough hurdle. It could be a tough hurdle to overcome. Yeah, the plus and minus of this loopy, sleepy Joe attack. And, you know, one of the geniuses of Trump's 
calling a name, he gets the presidential amplifier, and then everybody uses it. You know, he puts it into the speech. The media kind of bets in that. But this attack on Biden, it's going to be up to Biden. If Biden is good, he'll knock it down instantly. If Biden is bad, the thing will compound and double. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a pal of mine who's a big world-famous movie director, sold a couple billion dollars worth of box office tickets. You've all seen and enjoyed his excellent movies. And he had a very shrewd take on this. He said, Biden really needs a first act. Because they can't take for granted that the audience knows the Joe Biden story. They know a little bit about it. 100%. But if you get the first act, then you're off on the dramatic journey you're going to take people through in the movie of the election. And the, the Biden guys can't be high-fiving each other in Delaware and saying, everybody knows Joe's a good guy. Everybody knows the blue-collar voters love Joe. Because that's Washington echo chamber bullshit. And, you know, they should assume no asset there. Uh, and and not try to think they're starting from something other than the fact they're not Trump, which is gold. But, you know, they got that. They didn't earn it. They got to go earn the narrative and tell the story. First of all, I don't believe that they're sitting there in Delaware unaware of this. They've done they do their own research. They've got some fine researchers. They need to act on it. And so do the super PACs around them. Uh, I think this is job number one. Frankly, if people I, I here's what I believe about this election. If people decide that Biden is up to it, and uh, if they if they get their arms around the the sort of experience and history of the guy, uh, he will win. Uh, and that, by the way, is going to make the debates pretty important. How he appears mm-hmm. in those is going to become uh, important. But laying that foundation before Trump kind of creates a counter narrative uh, is, it seems to me, uh, really really important. Um, I just before we leave the the Trump spot, I I got a list of the markets, and you guys as uh, practitioners will appreciate this. I, I thought it was fascinating that they bought for uh, the next week with this negative ad in Wisconsin, Eau Claire, Green Bay, Milwaukee, and La Crosse. Obviously, they think Wisconsin is a pivotal state. Florida, Panama City, Fort Myers, uh, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Travis, Traverse City, and Marquette. Uh, North Carolina, Greensboro, Winston, Greenville, New Bern, Greenville, Spartanburg, uh, Wilmington, and Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Erie, Wilkes-Barre, Wilkes-Barre J- Johnstown, Pittsburgh, no Philly. In, and, and this was the one that interested me, Iowa. They're already running in Arizona, by the way. Iowa, Des Moines, and Sioux City. The fact that they feel the need in Iowa, yeah, it's a tell. Uh, I thought, was a, a pretty uh, eye-opening thing. I think this... And, and Arizona describes the battlefield as they see it. But it's a weird battlefield. I got to say, as a Wisconsin, Florida, and Michigan guy who's done a ton of statewides in all those places, those are where you go when the barn's on fire. You don't go fight for Grand Rapids. You try yes. to maximize that. Right. And, and Panama City, that, that's a freebie for the Republican in Florida politics, and it's about seven people. It's weird. They bought the spill market in, in Mobile and uh, Pensacola. So Yeah, I predict they're get Alabama. Yeah, I mean, this, is a, this, is a, this gives you a sense of uh, just how concerned they are uh, about, about their position right now. They're trying to soften up. They're trying to keep people from migrating to Biden in what should be generally— Republican stronghold. Oh, yeah. If you're fighting for Grand Rapids, you've lost Michigan. It's about that simple. Now, they got time, 
But, you know, Trump's the kind of guy who ought to be trying to make inroads in Flint. He did pretty well in Genesee and Saginaw County last time for a Republican, particularly in Genesee, compared to low norm. Um, but, look, I'll give the Biden people a salute. They, I, I like this new video. Now, I don't like that it's a video because nobody's going to see it. But right. it does. these campaign videos are useful because they always signal what the campaign is thinking. And there is a pivot in it. We've got a little sound of the end where they're trying to knock away the one leg Trump has left, a perception that he has some talent on the economy. Why don't, why don't we yeah. listen to that bite and talk about the video? More than 33 million Americans lose their jobs to the pandemic. Unemployment reaches Great Depression-era levels. Donald Trump doesn't understand. We have an economic crisis because we have a public health crisis. And we have a public health crisis because he refused to act. Donald Trump didn't build a great economy. His failure to lead destroyed one. Yeah, I thought that was good. And, you know, there was, it was a, there was, there was pre-roll on that. The beginning of the spot recounted all of his misleading statements about how we were going to get through this, it, all of his statements about how China was doing a great job on this. It was effective, as you point out. Um, the arguments are powerful. The they got to find a way to uh, to to make these arguments uh, uh, popularized and get them out there, and they got to get some of them on yeah. TV. Yeah, and the China thing quickly, and then Robert, I want to hear what you think. But I, I'm always reminded of the old George Lakoff, the political scientist, good liberal. His book, "Don't Think of an Elephant." So even when you say Trump's wrong on China, and now it's all about China. And I think Trump wants the campaign that's all about China because the default position a lot of voters will be, yeah, what are those Chinese up to? Uh, it's the economy stuff is the meat. So whack that part of the video and just that little chunk we heard of pandemic incompetence, economic pain, you, you can't trust to run the economy is much better for him than playing defense on China. Yeah. I mean, the question is that they're going to have to find out whether that is that's something to monitor, right? Whether the yeah, Trump start attacks working. on that, that could be just a base arousal you know, technique on, on Trump's part. I mean, the China thing has become important to Trump because he needs somebody to blame for his own inaction. And so China's, become, you know, that he's woven all of that together. Gibbs? Look, I, a few points to just walk through here. I mean, I, I, I think that that last part, Murphy, that you heard is likely to become the full rallying cry for Biden because it mm -hmm. assumes um, you, you're not going to convince voters that somehow – the virus in and of itself is completely his fault. It's nature, right? But it's the idea that his inability to act didn't prevent the public health crisis that then led to the economic crisis. I think there's really important cause mm -hmm. and effect that connects there that's yeah. really, really important. Um, a CBS poll from last week, you know, how much of a factor is the virus in your vote uh, 30% said the virus was a major factor. Uh, how important is the economy? 50%, right? More people are dealing with the economic um, downturn yes. than they are with the virus. This, though, gives them a beautiful way of right, weaving right. that all together. You have to link the two. You have and to I think it's two. really, really well done. A couple of other things just that Murphy brought up earlier. I couldn't agree more, and both of you said this. Um, we 
we we're political professionals and people that report in Washington essentially are political professionals in the sense that they covered it all. And Biden's been on the scene for 40 years, but most voters know very little, very, very, very little about him. We've all heard of focus groups where they can identify that he was Barack Obama's vice president. And that's where the trail runs cold. So there is now a huge race on each of these sides to, as we talked about, color in what the outlines of that persona look like. And the winner of that, um, whoever does that in the right way the quickest, may well win this race. Uh, the, the vice president has uh, some strong stuff in his background around economic recovery, and he's got to get that out front and center. The last thing I would say is th- this Iowa inclusion is interesting, uh, as you pointed out, David, but I think it also goes to this fact that, uh, and Murphy mentioned this, the polling is now happening not just obviously at the presidential level, but at the House and the Senate level. Mm-hmm. There is a potentially contested Senate race in Iowa. In 2016. Yeah, not potentially. I think it's going to be a race. In 2016, the Senate races followed the presidential race in terms of who won that. And if you've got North Carolina where there's an important Senate race in play and Arizona where there's an important Senate race in play uh, and you places like Iowa, all of a sudden Montana now it has some life. Right. Montana may well be the one that puts them uh, puts Democrats potentially into the majority. But it gives you a sense that this is not just a save Trump. Uh, movement anymore. This is a save the Senate movement too. And, and that, that augurs for some, it, it augurs to make this an even bigger, more important election uh, than ever before, because, you know, a couple of months ago, everyone was sort of easy, could have easily bet that the house would stay democratic. The, the Senate would stay Republican and, and the real fight would be uh, right. for 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It now looks like the the Senate as well as the White House are in play. Yeah, man. I, I Look, I said last week, uh, I, I think that my view of this has shifted. And I think that Democrats, as we sit here today, are, are, are more likely than not to be in the majority uh, in the Senate. Although I don't think, Robert, that they – this was a Trump campaign buy, and I don't think that they – they're buying. They're buying for Trump. They, I think, you know, there were polls in Iowa that had the Senate race close, but also the presidential race, like within right. a couple of points, which right. had to be alarming uh, to them. What's interesting to me is what's missing from this are any expansion markets. This is purely a defensive buy, totally defensive, defensive by state and defensive yeah. yep. by market. So, as Murphy said, if if you're fighting over the panhandle of Florida, yeah. I mean, you're 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 literally fighting over the last vestiges of real estate because the Panhandle of Florida is near and dear to to what I refer to L.A. Uh, Murphy, and that's Lower Alabama. Um, so <laughs> we, we, you know, again, it, it is it, it, there's not much swing there, as you said. Yeah. There's not a ton of swing in Grand Rapids, but I think his ability to potentially lose more of those suburban voters in Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo it just means bad things for Michigan. Wait till uh, new campaign manager Corey Leandowski takes over and the buys will <laughs> all be in Manhattan to impress Trump's friends and everything. It's going to be even a even a dumber pattern than they have now, which is not a path to victory in media buying. So two more quick campaign things. Uh, quickly, I, I got a horse laugh the other day because on the same day Biden thinks 
there was a story in the Politico saying that Kamala Harris is now the front runner for VP. She's shaken up her staff. She's brought in these new brilliant people, and they they listed them all. And you know she's unstoppable to be the obvious choice for Biden as VP. And the same day in the New York Times, Kamala Harris doesn't isn't campaigning for VP. She has brought in a brilliant staff of A, B, and C new people, and she'd sure be great at it. And she's pretty much the obvious choice, but she sure isn't campaigning. Now that looked like a lot of campaigning to me. You guys are old Democratic insiders. You've seen this before. What, what's your take on the, you know, quickly, because we I know we want to get to the uh, the millennial vote, too. But what, what's your yeah. take on the, well, look, the campaign I, for VP? Made me I laugh. think the most uh, awkward thing in politics is how one campaigns for a vice mm-hmm. president. No one's quite figured it out. Stacey Abrams has gone the overt route. This is sort of a halfway uh, kind of thing. I don't know that any of that stuff. Uh, is going to matter very much. And Biden's going to have to make a calculation of, uh, about a number of things. Like, what is it that he needs to satisfy? Does he need someone who reads, as was argued to me by, uh, I had a conversation yesterday with Peter Hart, the eminent sort of Yoda of pollsters. Uh, Obi-Wan, said, Obi-Wan, he, Yoda, Yoda. He said uh, the most important thing <laughs> is that people see that person, because Biden is a transitional figure, older, see that person as absolutely capable of sit, stepping in, in in the moment. There are others who argue, and this gets into the millennial uh, or younger voters, not not just millennials, but below millennials, uh, the you know la- a relative lack of enthusiasm. Ron Brownstein has talked about the inversion in mm-hmm. that uh, there's a, not a lot of enthusiasm for Biden among young people, which is where Democrats usually get their votes. And there's growing uneasiness with Trump among older voters who've been disproportionately affected by uh, by the virus. But there was a focus group, Robert, that you flagged uh, uh, in the last week or two among these younger voters and particularly Bernie-oriented, progressive, younger voters. And there is a issue there. So the question is, uh, is there something that Biden should do? Uh, does, does his choice have to speak to that, give them a greater sense of enthusiasm? Uh, or is that not the primary question that he needs to focus? And if so, uh, does that where does that lead him? Does it lead him to Kamala, who's kind of hip and a, a woman of color and, and may have an, a, a more of appeal? Does it lead him all the way uh, to someone like Elizabeth Warren, although giving a, a, she has an issue because she has a Republican governor, Democrats would lose a seat at least temporarily. I mean, w- what do you think? Well, I think the great thing is you put all these things up on a board, right? And you try to what are you going to try to put the circle around that that gets most of those things right doesn't have a republican governor can turn on younger voters good at governing, has national security experience and all those things. I do think it's going to come down to a personal connection with Biden. I think Biden, having been the vice president and gone through this selection, it was somebody that, that President Obama felt comfortable um, with his ability and his experience to help guide him on that decision-making process. Uh, so I think I still think governing is going to be the preeminent need for um, for a vice president. I thought that the stories, Mike, that you brought up were interesting. If there's one thing that I think is universally believed about Kamala Harris's last 
12 months in politics. Maybe there's two things. One, she's really good at asking questions in hearings. And she's really, really bad and terrible at running a campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think those articles were, were, I mean, very few people outside of our sphere know who any of those people were mentioned in those articles. But it was important just to say, hey, all those guys that crashed the ship onto the rocks where the best day literally of the campaign was the announcement with the big crowd, mm-hmm. all those people are gone. Um, and so again, I think it's this sort of cute little, cause yeah. I mean, who really writes a story about somebody, some Senator who changes consultants because their last ones were bad, except if you're, as you said, campaigning to be vice president. And, and you know, the trick, the new, the new consultants come in and tell the press everything's better because now the new geniuses are in charge and we got rid of those idiots. But the constant in Kamala Harris's campaign failures have been Kamala and her sister. And if you ask anybody who worked in the campaign, they're going to, that's the one thing that hasn't changed. The other weakness, I think, to some of these choices is I, if, if you came up in California politics successfully, as she has very successfully, you're very good at working the inside game of democratic politics. You don't know anything about a general election. You've never seen one. To some extent true of, um, of, uh, Warren as well. You're, you're a superpower like Mike Dukakis was at internal democratic politics, but you get in a general election, you're a little tone deaf. And Biden isn't from a swing state either. So that's a bit of a deficit. I, I think the question for the D's is, is fundamental and it's not an easy one. Do they go internal with somebody who, who energizes their coalition? Or do they go external and, and, and try to keep that advantage in the suburbs? So that's a Whitmer or Klobuchar versus a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren. And you can make a case for either. I'm for the suburb theory. At the end of the day, I agree with Robert that comfort's going to matter. It oh, yeah. also matters whether people see it as a solid wealth. If, if, if the choice seems tactical, I think that hurts Biden. You know, this is the first choice. This is the first and maybe most important presidential decision you make before you even, and people are judging you based on that appointment. If they think it's a solid appointment, well thought through, this is a person who could serve, and that person performs well and performs in the debate well, looks plausible, um, then I think that works for him. Ultimately, this Probably so. So it only matters as a reflection of Biden's judgment, mm-hmm. because ultimately this is going to be about Biden. I and totally so, agree with that. And you know, but also pick somebody who you don't disagree with on a lot. So the press coverage turns to differences rather than strengths. Okay, we're going to take a quick break in our conversation while we pay the bills. Let's hear from a sponsor. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero 
for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through relief band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with relief band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. We got a lot of folks who have questions yeah, for, big mailbag. for us, so let's hit that mailbag. And now's the obligatory ad. If you want to send us a mailbag question, email us at hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. It really helps the podcast out. Our first question is from Allie, and this is for David. If there was ever a silver bullet vice presidential nomination, it's Michelle Obama. Though it's well known she is allergic to politics and, after reading her book and watching her new documentary, seems overtly reluctant to ever step into the formal political arena again. So, David. Look, Robert and I know Michelle very well, and I think the one thing that everyone would agree on who has worked with her uh, are two things. One is she's an extraordinary person and personality, and the success of her book, her tour, speaks to what a compelling personality she is. She is. She's she's brilliant and she's uh, and she's real. But she also was a conscript to politics. You know, she wasn't even involved in Barack Obama's campaign until he ran for president. They had an understanding she was going to pursue her career and 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 uh, family uh, interests. And he he would uh, do politics and that when he ran for president, she, uh, you know, she signed up, but not for a lifetime of it. And uh, the idea that she would uh, involve herself in a political campaign, I find I, I would be more than stunned. Uh, you know, I think she would prefer to walk across hot coals uh, than submit herself uh, to, uh, uh, to that process just because she, ha- you know, she, she would not tolerate it well. And um, so, yeah, she would be a great asset. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but I would so bet against that. I would take everything and bet against that. Robert? I think if if she had to make this call 10,000 times, I feel safe putting a large amount of money on she would say no 10,000 times. Yeah. I think she, Sasha and Malia have already given a bunch of their childhood and, and their young lives to uh, the pursuit of of politics and I don't think she would put them through that again. 
Yeah. Not a chance. Right. So sorry, Ali. Um, not going to Not going <laughs> to happen. And by the way, happen. would be a mistake. You never pick a bigger star to VBP. It eclipses the prime candidate. Murphy, Nicola, do you guys think post-Trump the GOP can continue to win elections relying on only on white working class voters, old voters, and evangelicals, it is eventually going to have to tr- uh, try to attract Hispanic and black voters like it tried to between 2012 and early 2015. The answer, according to Nicola, is contained within the question, but I suspect you agree with her. <laughs> Hell yes, Nicola. Thank you. There's a big debate in the Republican Party that I call the mathematicians versus the priests. And the mathematicians <laughs> look at demography and say, hey, two plus two is four. Uh, grumpy old white guys is shrinking as a percentage of the electorate. Caucasian voters may even dip below 70% this year, depending on turnout. We can't win that way. I actually wrote something you can look up for time called the coming GOP ice age. Now, the priests say have faith. And the problem for us mathematicians, I being one of them, was when Trump won, despite the demographic trend, the priests could all say, see, we predicted a miracle and it happened. So burn those mathematicians at the stake. And so we're, we're all singed. But you can't beat demography, and I believe you're absolutely right, and the party ignores demography at its peril. Okay, here's one for Robert from Matthew. How do you explain that most polls seem to favor Biden in the general and most important swing states, yet betting markets favor Trump and have so consistently, even as his approvals continue to tank? What are the betting markets saying that polls are not? Uh, A good question. Uh, My hunch is, and I read a little about this the other day uh, just because it piqued my interest as well, they simply believe Trump is going to end up pulling this thing out even as the math right now shows that Biden is ahead. Look, I would say one, one big caveat to any of this is we've got many months to go in this. And this, this is going to turn a couple more times uh, in, in terms of, of polls tightening in States and getting bigger and what have you. Uh, But my, my guess is that people just simply believe um, in the end uh, that, that Trump wins. I think there's a little bit of a, a New York bubble on that betting market and a little bit more of a, somebody that just isn't looking through the totality of what I think it looks like could happen. You can understand where they're coming from because incumbent presidents almost always get reelected. There are enormous advantages that repo, uh, that uh, rest in that office. And you've got a guy who is relentless, unbounded, and willing to use anything at his disposal to win. And there are, there are these questions that we've talked about, about Biden and his campaign on the other side. So I, I understand why they land there. I don't know how you price in uh, depression-level economic figures uh, and the really um, horrific uh, and disjointed way in which uh, Trump has dealt with this total lack of empathy, total lack of organization, total lack of uh, honesty about where we are and say that these are not offsetting factors. But there are inherent advantages to an incumbent, and that's probably part of what they're pricing in in an electoral college system. You're absolutely right uh, in terms of incumbents generally are favored and incumbents generally win. Uh, That math does change when you find yourself in the economic disaster or the economic bad times that, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush uh, or or Jimmy Carter found themselves in. Yeah, I'd love to see, Murphy, I'd like to see the econometric models. Earlier in the year, they were all pointing to Trump getting reelected. 
I'm wondering what, whether they've revamped their models now that the economy is in the tank, or do they believe that people will simply excuse Trump for that because uh, this was uh, an, an act of God? I think if you dial in the pure economic perception and pain numbers, they'd flip. But we'll see. Somebody will probably do that. Here's a quick story about these betting markets, because people forget that the betting markets are affected by the betting. And this isn't like the Super Bowl where you got zillions of dollars being bet, which is a pretty intelligent market. These are relatively small numbers. So be careful of these betting markets simply because there's not enough money in them. They are somewhat, well, they're heavily affected mathematically, especially when there's not that much money by who's betting. Trust polling. Last call. Last call. So I got one, guys. Right before we uh, sat down to record this conversation, I was transfixed listening to the Supreme Court argument on whether banks that hold President Trump's taxes will have to turn them over to the Congress and to prosecutors. Uh, They're going to decide this case in June. My last call is two. One is, it was fascinating to hear the Supreme Court do its work, and I hope that this becomes customary and not just a um, uh, virus-provoked aberration because it it was really interesting. Second, this is a pretty significant thing because if they rule against him and all the courts have all the way up to the Supreme Court, these are going to get dumped right in the middle of the campaign. Now, the Congress may not disgorge them. The prosecutor may not be willing to act. And maybe Trump has delayed this long enough so it gets past the election. But clearly, for the st- from from his standpoint, and ultimately from the standpoint of the Congress's ability to exercise any oversight uh, of the president, and for presidents to be above or the law, I mean there, there are a lot of implications to this. Yeah, president below the law—that's my number one uh, number one worry about all this. So, my last call is uh, a little bit of filthy commerce and family business here. We we have a fan and a a friend who has a podcast who's always talking about go listen to Hacks on Tap. So I thought we owed him a plug. The great Dana Gould, longtime Simpsons writer, a stand-up, stand-up, very funny guy's Instagram feed will give you the best Dr. Zayas impression you might have seen on Jimmy Kimmel. So a salute to the Dana Gould Hour, which you can find on your podcast dial. It's a great pop culture and occasionally politics podcast from a a good friend of the show. And with that, boys, let's uh, say goodbye for this week. We'll uh, have a new uh, treasure trove of stuff to talk about next week. Gibbs, always good to be with you, brother. Always happy to join. And uh, please, uh, both of you stay safe and healthy out there. And everyone out there. Good to see both you hacks. Everybody be well. We'll talk next week. 